Now, we are today finishing up our Welcome to Sound City Bible Church sermon series. We have been going for eight weeks over the foundational doctrines, the mission statement, the values that really shape who we are as a church, that undergird who we are and what it is that we do. And so today, we're finishing that up. It's been a great time of of learning, a great time of study, and a great time to just really kind of push reset for us. And so uh, as a church, we're finishing that up today, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible, we do have some available on the lobby. We'd love to give you one. That would be our gift to you because we simply want you to have God's word so you can read it for yourself and come to know this God that we love and that we worship. We're going to finish our time Uh, in this foundational sermon series by talking about the idea of covenant and what it means to be ministers of a new covenant. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I'm going to read through this entire passage. We'll pray, and then we'll get to work unpacking this idea today. Read along with me if you would. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that every time we open your word, we can hear you communicate to us, God. We don't have to wonder what you are like or what your activity is, but God, we can know you truly. And God, I pray during this time that you would give us all soft hearts. You'd give us teachable hearts. God, each and every single person here today, God, we have areas in our life that we need to change and we need to grow and we need to repent and we need to receive your grace. And God, I ask that you would, Um, even just help eliminate distractions right now that we could all uh, hear what it is that you want to speak to us. God, would you guard my lips? Help me to teach only that which is in line with your truth. And we pray that our hearts and our attention would be focused on Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Uh, A number of years back, uh, when my wife and I first got married, we bought our first home, and we really loved that home. It It was a great starter home. But the real excitement came a few years later when we bought our second home. Uh, we bought it from a relative of my wife's and it was, it was bigger, it was in a nicer neighborhood. We were really excited to get into this, what felt like for us was gonna be a more long-term and permanent home. And when we, we moved into this house, we were really excited because it had things like two bathrooms or a garage. You know, we were really excited. Um, and we, we went through the whole purchasing process. We got done. The relative of my wife's had moved out and had cleaned everything out. And he came up to me and goes, hey, Aaron, by the way, I forgot to tell you this, but here's the notebook. Uh, and you need to read this notebook. There's some important information in there that you're going to need. And I looked on the front of this notebook uh, and it said on the front of it, CC and R's. And I thought, like, I didn't have any idea what that meant. I thought, is this like a Credence Clearwater Revival songbook? Like, what is, he, what is he handing me? And I opened it up, and it was Community, Covenants, and Restrictions. 
Anybody live in a neighborhood that has restrictions and a homeowner's association or anything like that, right? I had no concept of this before. And in this book were all sorts of laws and all sorts of do's and don'ts and all sorts of regulations. For example, it said you cannot disassemble a boat and leave it sitting in your yard for a period of several weeks. I did not know that I was not allowed to do that. I wasn't allowed to burn motor oil on the property. There was, these were rules from the notebook. It also said you were not allowed to have too many cars parked in front of your house at any one time. And there were a few times where we actually got in trouble because of hosting a community group at our house. Too many people would show up, there'd be too many cars, and one of the neighbors would complain. I did not know that coming into this neighborhood meant I was going to have to abide by a covenant, a set of obligations, a set of rules, things that I was allowed to do, things that I was not allowed to do. I would submit to you that the idea of covenant is about as foreign of a concept to our 21st century American ears as anything else you're going to find in the Bible. If you walked up to the average person on the street, if you went to your work and you said, hey, like, what do you know about covenants? They might either A, think of like, you know, the easements between properties that you're not supposed to build things on, or some sort of like weird, scary Halloween movie ritual, right? Like, that's probably most people's idea of the word covenant. However, the word covenant and the idea of covenant, I would submit to you, is one of the major themes of the Bible, that one of the themes that really unifies the Bible from front to back, from beginning to end. And this idea of covenant, not only is it biblical, it's deeply rooted in the character of who God is. And so as we're looking at what it means to be a church, as we're finalizing this sermon series, we want to look at the idea of covenant and being in covenant relationship. And so Paul as he's writing to this church in Corinth, is going to teach them about what it means to be in covenant. But I do want to say this. Before we unpack the verse, I want to give you just a little bit of their complicated history, what Paul and the Corinthian church had walked through together. Because those of you who know the tale know that the Corinthian church had some issues. So walk through these kind of step by step. First, you see that Paul is the one who planted the church in Corinth. You can read that story in Acts chapter 18. It says that he stayed there for a period of 18 months, which for Paul was a pretty long time. He moved into Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half. For Paul, he often was kind of going from one city to another, planting churches, moving on. But in Corinth, he actually stayed put for a good long time. He, he had a, a close relationship with this church. It also says that he never took a paycheck from this church. He actually made his living by making tents and selling them so that he was kind of a, what you might call today, a bivocational minister. He did not take a salary from this church, but he did earn his living making tents so that he could say, I never took a dime from you. He actually says those sorts of things in his letters to the Corinthians. Now, he plants the church. He eventually has to leave because the government beat him up so bad. He got literally run out of town. And so he, as he did, kind of brushed it off and went to the next town and started preaching about Jesus some more. The second thing though, is he wrote them a letter. And we're gonna call this the lost letter number one. What we call 1 Corinthians is not actually the first letter that Paul ever wrote to this church. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, in my previous letter to you. Now, this letter's been lost. We don't know what happened to it. We don't really know what it was about. But there was some sort of dialogue in which they were asking questions and Paul was answering them. They wrote another letter back asking questions. And so this letter was specific to some of those questions. Then we get... 1 Corinthians. This is the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was written to address some of their questions and written to correct some of the things that were going on there. Um, quick show of hands. How many of you have read part or all of 1 Corinthians at any point in your life? Okay, a good number of you. Then you will know that the church in Corinth had 
issues. We'll just leave it at that, right? They were a church that was not some shining example. Sometimes we talk about, you know, in Christian circles, oh, if we could just get back to like the old early church, if we could be like the early church, you do not want to be like this early church, right? They had rich people excluding poor people from communion. You had people coming to communion and drinking so much that they were getting drunk in the worship service. You had uh, people interrupting the service, practicing the gift of speaking tongues in such a chaotic way that they couldn't actually even get any instruction in. The preacher couldn't preach because people were speaking in tongues the whole time. And they had a member of the community that had um, hooked up with, we'll say, his stepmother or possibly his mother. It just says in the Bible, his father's wife. So that could be at best his stepmother. And the church was celebrating what is a uh, incestuous relationship. So this is a church that really had some issues. So Paul writes them this letter trying to address some of these issues. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know he doesn't really parse many words. He, he tells them kind of how it is. Then afterward, Timothy, Paul's uh, apprentice, his pastoral apprentice is sent to check in on them. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. He was sent to check in on them and apparently that did not go particularly well because then Paul shortly thereafter made a visit himself and it's referred to as a painful visit. You can see in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I'm gonna come visit you. You can read in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, you don't want me to come visit again. That was a painful visit, a visit of, of much tears. And apparently this visit did not go particularly well. Paul was forced to leave in the middle of the conflict. They didn't really work it out. Then Paul writes another letter that has since been lost. We'll call this lost letter number two. It's called the letter of tears. Again, this one has not been saved for us. Apparently uh, it was specific to the situation. And so maybe it didn't get passed around. Ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit decided that it was not to be part of our collection of, of books in the Bible, a part of our canon, but there is another letter. So if you're counting, if you're tracking, what we have is first and second Corinthians, but they're probably more like second and fourth Corinthians. There's other letters that Paul wrote. But in this letter of tears, he spoke forcefully and he spoke directly and he said that sin was sin and he, he spoke lovingly, but it was apparently a very difficult and painful letter. And now we find ourselves him writing 2 Corinthians and there's good news because in 2 Corinthians, he actually is able to point out the fact that though my last letter grieved you, I see the evidence of repentance. I'm really thankful because it was a hard letter. I, I spoke some hard words to you, but I see that you're taking those words to heart and you're actually changing and there's genuine repentance at work in your heart. And so that's where we find ourselves. By the way, all of this took place in about seven years. It's about a seven-year period from the time that Paul planted the church in Corinth to the time that he wrote this letter in 2 Corinthians. And what's happening now, by the way, we're not done. That's a lot of water under the bridge, but there's still more to come. Where we find ourselves now is people in the church of Corinth, some people in the church of Corinth, are questioning Paul's credentials. How dare this guy speak to us so forcefully? How dare this man speak so authoritatively? What gives him the right to speak to our church in such a way? And so that's really what Paul is doing in this letter is making a defense of his ministry. <clears throat> but really, he wants to get it down to the, the real idea, which is not just defense of his ministry, but an idea of covenant. And so let's do this. Let's go back to verse one and let's look through uh, these verses. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? <clears throat> I want you to see the, there's a little bit of sarcasm there, right? Paul is saying, hey, you're questioning my authority to lead. Do I need to get some letters of recommendation? 
Do I need to have somebody, uh, you know, write me some letters so that you know that I'm legit? Uh, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever had to have someone write you a letter of re recommendation for a job or maybe for a house, right? Is that like the scariest thing ever? Because <laughs> I don't know about your friends, but I always wonder what mine are putting in those letters, right? Yeah, and then what if they call them and what if they actually ask about me? That's a frightening thing. In this culture, they didn't have LinkedIn. So if you wanted to get a job, you didn't have some sort of online database where people could go. You literally had to show up and you had to bring letters of recommendation from someone who was trustworthy. I'm gonna read you an ancient letter from this time period that kind of exemplifies what's going on. This is, get this name. This is the best name ever. This is called the Xenon Papyri number 2026. I don't know who names these things, archeologists, but if you're looking for a band name, I submit that one to you right there, okay? The Xenon Papyri, <clears throat> Asclepiades to Xenon. Greeting. By the way, if you're a, an expecting mother, there's some other names for you to consider as well, right? This is a treasure trove of name possibilities. Asclepiades to Xenon, greeting. Philo, the bearer of this letter to you, has been known to me for a considerable time. He has sailed up in order to obtain employment in certain sections of the Bureau of Philoscus, very important sounding job, uh, being recommended by Phileas and other accountants. So a real you know, group of party animals, right? Phileas, Phileas and these other accountants, be so good, therefore, as to make his acquaintance and introduce him to other persons of standing, assisting him actively, both for my sake <clears throat> and, that, and for that of the young man himself. For he is worthy of your consideration, as will be evident to you, if you receive him into your hands, farewell." This is an ancient letter that we have. This is some letter that a guy named uh, Philo took from Asclepiades to Xenon, as you do, right, to go get a job in the accounting department of Philoscus. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Anyways, you get the idea. You get the idea. You have to write letters of recommendation. And so Paul here in verse one is kind of saying like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you, do I need to go get some letters of recommendation? Do you not remember that I founded and that I planted the church? Why is it that you're questioning my authority to lead and to love and to speak into the situation of the church? I, this is a bit of speculation on my part, but my guess is that the church had had some turnover and there are newer people who don't remember Paul. They never maybe even knew him from either his previous visitor or when he planted the church. And they're saying, who is this guy who's out traveling around the world trying to tell us how to run our church? Who is this guy? But Paul still loves him and is speaking to them. Let's, let's look at this again. Okay, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now get this. This is shocking. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Okay, let me explain to you what Paul is saying here because it's more shocking than even you realize. He says, I do not need some letter of recommendation. You know what my proof is? You guys. Backing up to what I just said a minute ago, remember how many problems this church had? The church in Corinth would never have been anyone's first choice for a proof that somebody's ministry was succeeding, right? You would have, if you were Paul, you would probably have said, I would like to keep that church off of my public record. I would like you to look at the, the church in Philippi. They're doing much better, right? No, the apostle Paul says, look, I don't need anyone to defend my ministry. I don't need a letter of recommendation. I have you. 
And you are a letter that can be known and read by all. What Paul is saying is, I have seen tremendous work of God in your life. You are changed people. You are different people than you once were. And if you want to see any evidence of the validity of my ministry, that God himself is at work, look at your lives. That's good news, right? And it says, you show that you are a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. All right, Bible scholars, when you see in the New Testament, the phrase tablets of stone, what should come to mind for you? Ten Commandments, you got it, absolutely. The Ten Commandments should come to mind. We're gonna unpack this in a minute, but notice how Paul is starting to move the conversation away from these written letters of recommendation. He's gonna move it to the idea of the covenant, okay? And I'll explain more about how that works in a minute. Let's keep going. Verse four. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim as anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Let me pause right there. What is it that makes your life count? What is it that makes your life matter? How many degrees do you need to have for your life to be valid and important? How many letters of recommendation do you need for you to feel like your life has not been a waste? Because the answer here is that those things are irrelevant when it comes to being sufficient in Christ. How do you know if your life matters? Do you belong to Jesus? How do you know if your life counts? Do you belong to Jesus? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us, here's here's how sufficient he's made us. You ready? Here's how much we know that our life matters. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. God is so gracious. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant. We're actually gonna be partners with God in the work that he's doing of new covenant. And he says, it's not written of the letter, but it's of the spirit. It's not on stone tablets, but it's in the heart. It's not something that you read a list. It's something that God does within your person, okay? Now, I I wanna take a minute I wanna unpack the idea of covenant because like I said at the beginning, I don't think we even really know what covenant means in our culture. How many of you would agree with me that we live in a highly autonomous and individualistic society? Very, very individualistic. The the highest virtue, the highest value is to be a self-made man or woman, to be your own person, to follow your dreams, be who you wanna be. But the world in which the Bible was written, the mindset was very different. It was much more relational, much more communal, much more covenantal. So here's what the Lexham Bible Dictionary says about a covenant. So the starting point is, it's very simply, it's an agreement between two parties. It says this, a sacred kinship bond between two parties ratified by swearing an oath. Okay, so at the most basic level, it's an agreement between two parties and there's an oath, you, you vow and you have a sign, you have a symbol, uh, in, in current covenants, like take marriage for an example, uh, you wear a, a wedding ring. It's a, a sign of the covenant that you have made with your spouse. Uh, in, in many of these Old Testament biblical covenants, there would be a sign. They would, they would cut an animal in half and they would let the blood spill all over the place and then they would walk in between. It's very gruesome sounding, I know. They would walk in between the two pieces of the animal as, as though to say, if I ever break this covenant, let this happen to me, Right? I don't recommend doing that at your upcoming summer wedding. If you're planning on that, stick with the rings. It's a better sign. Uh, 
but that's, that's biblically the picture that you would see, right? So it's a sacred kinship bond between two parties ratified by swearing an oath, and there would usually be rules. You do this, I do that. You don't do this, I don't do that. But listen to what this Bible dictionary says. A growing, uh, while covenants invariably contain laws, a growing number of scholars recognize the priority of covenant relations over legal obligations. Put another way, it's the people are more important than the rules. The relationship is more important than you do this, I do that, you don't do this, I don't do that. In my book that I was handed in my neighborhood, I was given a set of covenants and it says, you're not allowed to do these things, you are supposed to do these things, here's your obligations. I never knew those people. I had no relationship with them whatsoever. I don't even know who I was in covenant with. That is not a biblical picture of covenant. When we think about covenant, for us as Americans, we're very contractual in our thinking. There's a difference between a contract and a covenant. And I actually want to spend a minute unpacking this. This is a list from Dr. Scott Hahn. He's actually a Roman Catholic theologian. He explains this really nicely, the difference between a contract and a covenant. So a contract is an exchange of promises. I'll do this, you do that. Here's what I promise, here's what you promise. A covenant, however, is a solemn oath. The difference is in the degree of seriousness. I could promise to deliver someone something from Craigslist, but I make no solemn oath. But when you're in covenantal relationship with someone, it's a solemn oath. It's a, it's a degree of seriousness. Contract is an exchange of property. Here's some stuff. Give me some stuff. Whereas a covenant is an exchange of life. It's not, here's your stuff. It's, I am yours and you are mine. A contract has a motivation of profit. It's, it's self-interest. I want my bottom line to go up. I want to make some money. I want to increase my net worth, right? That's, that's the motivation of a contract. The motivation of covenant is loyalty. I pledge myself to you. There's literally nothing that I have that you won't have. You actually see in, in certain biblical covenants, you know, the, they would, they would uh, two different tribes would make a treaty and it's not just that they wouldn't fight with each other, but it's if you ever get attacked, we'll be there to serve and support you and help you. That's a covenant. It's I'm loyal to you. And lastly, a contract is temporary and a covenant is permanent. Even some of them are intergenerational. It says we enter into this covenant, us and our descendants and, and their descendants and for all the generations. So that's the difference between a contract and a covenant. And I would just submit to you, as 21st century Westerners, Americans, we are very contractual in our thinking. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? Question, how many of you have a cell phone? Raise your hand. Almost all of you. You did not enter into covenant with AT&T. You signed a contract that says that they will provide you marginal service for an exorbitant fee, right? And you foolishly said, yes, that sounds great. I will enter into that. And if you look, there is fine print that says if you don't do certain things, they can get rid of you, uh, you know, mafia style, right? Check your contract. It's in there, okay? <laughs> Not to scare you, but you entered into a contract, it's, there's no relationship there. There's no swearing of loyalty. You're not loyal to AT&T. You just went and visited Sprint this week to see if they could lower your bill or cut it in half or whatever they're advertising, right? We're very contractual. Your mortgage, your rent is a contract. Your cell phone bill is a contract. All of the utilities that you pay, it's a contract. Your employment agreement, it's a contract. And that affects and infects the way that we think about everything. It affects the way that you think about your friendships. It affects the way that you think about your relationship with your children. It affects the way that you think about your marriage. It affects the way you think about your relationship with God. 
We get very contractual in our thinking. And I would submit to you that biblically speaking, contract thinking has no place in the hearts of Christians when it comes to these relationships. It is not a sin to sign a contract with AT&T. I was being facetious and joking, okay? But when it comes to the church, when it comes to God, when it comes to your spouse, contractual thinking flies in the face of who God is and what he has given to his people. Let me explain to you a couple of examples of human covenants, okay? These are covenants between more or less equals. They're bilateral. They go both directions. There are covenants between leaders and tribes. So various examples of this leader getting together with this leader and making a covenant. There's the example of marriage as being a covenant. Proverbs 2.17 explicitly says it, but the Bible presents a picture in many other ways of marriage being a covenantal relationship, that it's a pledging of life to one another. The Bible speaks of the parent-child relationship as being a covenantal relationship. There's examples of, of God speaking that way, but one of my favorite examples is from the book of Ruth. If you remember, uh, there's a woman named Naomi and she had two daughters-in-law. Both of her sons had died and the one daughter-in-law says, yeah, I'm gonna leave and go back to my home country. But Ruth says, no, I'm gonna stick with you and your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she actually pledges herself in covenant relationship and it's a covenantal parent-child relationship. There's a covenant relationship just between friends. 1 Samuel 18, there's a story of, of David and Jonathan. You remember King David and his best friend, Jonathan? Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. He was Prince Jonathan. He was gonna be king next. But God says, no, I'm, I'm rejecting Saul. I'm rejecting Jonathan. I'm gonna choose David to be the next king. And you know that Jonathan was faithful to that covenant. He says, your relationship, your friendship, our brotherhood and God's will is more important to me than my own self-interest of being the king. And so I'm gonna enter into covenant with David. There's even a personal covenant. In Job, uh, the, the man Job is, is heard saying that he has made a covenant with his eyes that he will put no unclean thing before it, that he will not uh, seek to have his eyes be delighted by sin. So it's a personal covenant. So you get the idea that we can't just use the word covenant in one singular way. There's a wide variety of covenants. Now, these are all human covenants. What about divine covenants? I'm glad you asked. Thank you for that. That gives me something else to talk about here. Ready? There are a handful of very important divine covenants, covenants that God himself makes with people throughout the pages of the scripture. Remember what I said, that covenant is one of the unifying themes of the entire Bible from, from front to back. It's about God pursuing his people in covenant relationship. So the first covenant we see is with Adam. God makes a covenant with Adam to bless him, to cause him to, to flourish on the earth, that he would live forever. And the requirement was do not eat from this tree. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day that you do, you will surely die. And of course, Adam did break that covenant. But there's a reference to it in Hosea 6 that talks about when Adam transgressed the covenant. So that Adam and God were in covenantal relationship. The second one that we see in the Bible is with Noah. There's a few uh, chapters later in the book. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, God promises to Noah that he would deliver his family from this coming flood. And actually what's even better is at the end of the flood, God covenants with Noah that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. That was a one-time action. It would never happen like that again. And so God has been faithful to his covenant. And every time you see a rainbow in the sky, the Bible says that's the sign of the covenant that God has made to never again flood the earth. Number three, God enters into covenant relationship with Abraham. And I love this one. He says to Abraham, he says, listen, I'm gonna take your descendants. I'm gonna take your offspring. I'm gonna make them into a great nation. By the way, at the time, Abraham had a grand total of zero children. But God says, I'm gonna take your offspring and you're gonna be a great nation. And through this nation, I'm gonna bless all of the nations of the world. I'm committing to you. It's gonna happen. Mark my words, it's guaranteed. After 
a few generations later, after Abraham's descendants uh, were enslaved in Egypt and then God brought them out and out of slavery, God made a covenant with Moses. And really God made a covenant with the whole nation of Israel at that point. He gave them the law. He gave them what we call the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I thought my covenant notebook was big. God gave them the first five books of the Bible. It says, here's the laws to obey. Here's the blessings I will give you. Here's the sins to avoid. And here's the curses that will happen if you break my covenant. It's a very serious covenant. It's the one that God made with the whole nation of Israel. There's one other one. God made a covenant with David, the king, and he promised him that David would always have a descendant sitting on the throne, that one of David's descendants would always be the king over God's people. And we know that that's true because it's come true in Jesus. Jesus is the king. So God has kept that promise as well. Now, here's the problem with these first five. The problem with the first five is that God's people continue to break them. This is sin. This is transgression. This is a violation of what God has said is to be done. It's looking at God's law. It's looking at God's requirements and saying, no, I do not want to abide by it. I will break covenant with you. And God had said repeatedly, if you break covenant, there will be judgment. And so after the time of David, after the time of some of his descendants as kings, God actually brought judgment on the people of Israel by sending them into exile. And, and, and just in case we miss how serious that is, that literally means that soldiers showed up at people's houses, kicked in the doors, and dragged them off to a land that they did not want to live in. God brought judgment because of continual transgression of the covenant. And while God's people were in exile, while they were uh, experiencing the righteous judgment of the Lord, the prophets began to speak of a time when there would be a new covenant that God would restore the fortunes of Israel, that God would not be displeased with them forever, but that he would restore them into right covenant with himself. I want you to see briefly here before we, before we unpack this new covenant any further, I want you to understand that of all of these Old Testament covenants, the one that really stands out above all is, is number four, the one with Moses. That's the covenant. When you read the Bible, and it uses the phrase breaking the covenant or transgressing the covenant, 99% of the time, that's what it's referring to is the, the covenant with Moses and the law that was given to God's people. And so this new covenant now is spoken of in contrast to the covenant with Moses. If you have your Bibles, keep a, keep a finger here in, in 2 Corinthians 3. We're gonna come back to it. I want you to flip back to Jeremiah 31. I want you to see this. This is one of the most remarkable promises in the entire Bible, a remarkable promise of God's grace in the Old Testament speaking about the coming of Jesus. This is what God promises to his people who are currently in exile. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. See, there's that marriage language in covenant. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jump, jump down to verse 37. Thus says the Lord, I love this ending. <coughs> Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then 
I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. I love that because it's a little bit of divine sarcasm there. I'm not sure if you caught that. Can you measure heaven? Can you go underneath the earth and measure its foundations? If you can do that, then I'll get rid of my people. Oh, you can't? All right, sounds like you're stuck with me then. That's the first Aaron Gray revised translation, right? This new covenant is new in several ways. One of the the first ways that it's new is that the law would be written on hearts, not on stone tablets, okay? Think about this. How many of you would like to operate in a household where the kids know the family household rule book inside and out and they can quote subsection, chapter, and verse of your family rule book, right? Oh, no, 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 sister, you cannot take my toy because it says in section three, subsection 2A that you shall not take my toy and we abide by the family rules, right? That's, that's one way to live. Or there's another way of live where the children actually love and care for each other and don't steal each other's toys because they value relationship, right? Both, it's the same thing. But one is an approach of written on stone tablets. One is an approach of being written with the law. One is an approach that's written on the heart, right? I could tell you, don't cheat on your spouse. And you could think, okay, don't cheat on my spouse. That's the rule. I need to keep the rule. Don't cheat on my spouse. Or you could not cheat on your spouse because you love them and you're committed to them in covenantal relationship, right? So this is what God is saying. The the new covenant's gonna be different. I'm not just gonna write it on stone tablets. It's not gonna be a list of rules that you read, but I myself will actually put this law into your hearts and you're going to delight in doing what pleases me. It's gonna be different in that way. The second way that this new covenant's gonna be different is that each individual will be able to relate directly to God. In the old covenant, under the old law, you had to go through a priest. If you wanted to make sure that your prayers got heard, you had to go to the priest, you had to go to the temple, you had to offer sacrifices. And under the new covenant, God says, each one will be able to come directly to me through Jesus Christ. So each individual can relate directly to God. Number three, I love this. The new covenant will be unbreakable. The previous covenants were breakable. You and I have to deal with the fact, you and I have to reckon with the fact that we are by nature covenant breakers. But God says in this new covenant, if you can measure the heavens, then I'll get rid of you. Oh, you can't, so I'm gonna keep you. It won't be like the covenant that I made with the fathers when they broke it, even though I was acting like their husband, they were an unfaithful, adulterous spouse. No, this new covenant's gonna be unbreakable. There's one really key similarity though that's exactly the same between the old and the new covenant and it's this phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people. Isn't that great? It's not a, here's a covenant, here's a list of rules, do you agree to this? It's like, hey, do you wanna be in relationship with me? That's the exact same phrase that God said to Moses in Exodus. It's the exact same language. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen, for you who are Christians, you are God's people. You belong to him. You have been purchased with a great price. To those of you who are not Christians, you do not belong to him. But the invitation from God's heart is to be invited in to be his people. Some of you think that Christianity is, if I become a Christian, I gotta learn all the right rules and I gotta learn all the right do's and all the don'ts and all that stuff. No, the the invitation for you who are not Christians is to become a Christian so that you can belong to God and that he will write his law directly on your heart. And it's not about, have I got all my lists in order? Am I making sure I'm not breaking the community covenant restrictions? It's, do I know God? 
Have I been accepted by him? Have I been adopted into his family? That heart is the same. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Luke chapter 22, the night of Jesus' arrest, fast forwarding many years later, he says this, he takes bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying, remember that new covenant that God promised to make with his people? It's happening now. It's happening tonight. It's happening tomorrow as my body is stretched out on a Roman cross and nails are driven through my hands and through my feet, my blood will be a payment for all of the covenant unfaithfulness that you have perpetrated and it will be for your forgiveness and it will be a sign and a seal forever that you are part of a new covenant, one that is unbreakable. Christian, if you believe in Jesus, then you are part of an unbreakable covenant written in his blood. Remember what I said about the sign being uh, an animal that was split in half and blood being put everywhere and, and basically you would walk through this animal and say, if I ever break the covenant, let this happen to me. But God never broke the covenant and yet he himself took that punishment that we deserved. That is the gospel. That is the story of the cross. That is the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. His blood poured out for our sins, for our covenant unfaithfulness and his blood as a sign and a seal of an unbreakable covenant that you and I are now part of. That is why when we take communion together, it's a covenant meal. I say it every time. We say it every time as pastors. It's for Christians. If you are not a Christian, we want you to become a Christian and join us at the family meal, at the covenant meal, where we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And when we take that bread and we take that wine or that juice, we remember that it was a new covenant that's written in Jesus' blood. This is no mere memorial. This isn't something we do like, hey, remember how cool it was that Jesus died on the cross? No, this is a, a deeply powerful and symbolic act that we are part of the new covenant, that we're members of the new covenant, that we have been baptized into the family and that we share a meal together as brothers and sisters with our Lord Jesus, our big brother with us and our heavenly father pleased with us. Jesus has brought us into an unbreakable covenant. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Do I get an amen from anybody in that? God has always been faithful to his word. God never goes back on his promises. God never uh, 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 says one thing and then at the last minute switches. And the only time he ever does anything like that is to make it even better than we thought it could be. Amen? If God changes anything, it's to make it better, to make it more glorious. Now, with that in mind, let's go back one more time to this verse in 2 Corinthians 3, Okay. In, in verses four through six, I want you to see this, this verse five when he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. How, how sufficient are we? Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, let me, let me remind you of this. Do you remember how much Paul and this church in, in Corinth went through? Do you remember how much drama, how much heartache, how much pain, how much conflict, how much fighting, how many letters, that's a lot of letters, visits, late nights, tears. Do you think that there was ever a time in Paul's heart where he said, you know what would be easier to do than all of this drama and all this nonsense? It would just be easier to cut bait and run. 
it'd probably be a lot easier if I just found myself a different church because these guys are a real thorn in my flesh, pun intended. Do you ever think that maybe that crossed Paul's mind? I would, I would imagine so. What did Paul not do? Paul did not cut bait and run. Paul did not say, I'm just gonna find myself a better church. Paul said, I'm gonna stick with these people if it kills me. Paul, in light of the covenant faithfulness that God had had to him, modeled that to this church in Corinth, a church that did not deserve it. I would submit to you that we give up far too easily in our covenant relationships. I know, I know many people who, uh, they don't make it through seven years of marriage. Paul made it through seven years with this church. I know people that give up before the seven years of marriage. Actually, sociologists tell us that the first seven years are the hardest. And once you make it past year seven, your, your divorce rate just plummets and the, the likelihood of making it 20, 30, 40 years just skyrockets. And we, as, as fallen, flawed human beings, we, we give up far too easily, amen? And, and I've, I've watched some people get married, they don't make it through seven, they get divorced, and they go try again, trying the hardest years of marriage over and over and over again, hoping maybe for a different result. We give up far too easily. And you know what's beautiful? Paul says that you're my letter of recommendation. You know what that means? After all of the heartache, after all of the drama, after all of the pain, Paul can say, I see some good fruit in your life. And he got to rejoice at seeing the work of God. And I think we miss out on some of the joy that could be ours in, in Christ because we give up too easily. What if we stuck it out? What if, what if it didn't turn out to be the bed of roses that we thought it was gonna be and we, and we kept working and we kept fighting. We kept saying, God's faithful to me. I'm gonna be faithful to this person. God's been faithful to me. I'm gonna be faithful to this friend. God's been faithful to me. I'm gonna be faithful to this church. God's been faithful to me. And then we actually could get to rejoice on the other side of some of that pain. I don't know. Seems to me like Paul might've been onto something here. What would it look like for us to be covenantally committed to our spouses? For those of you who are married, what would it look like for you to be covenantally committed to your spouse even when they're being unloving? To do your best to say, I'm not gonna break the covenant. I'm gonna keep pursuing you in love. What would it look like for those of you who are parents to remain covenantally committed to your children even when they throw noodles at you or whatever, right? Or more heartbreakingly, when they get older, say, hey, I don't, I don't really wanna have a relationship with you. What would it look like for you to remain covenantally committed to them? What would it look like for us to remain covenantally committed to a church? To not think of church as an event that we attend, but a people that we belong to. To say, I, I belong. And even when these crazy Corinthians that I know are treating me bad, I'm still gonna love them and pursue them because God's been faithful to me. You know, this whole sermon series for us is we're kind of wrapping it up. It's been foundational for us. And I want us to really land on this idea of covenant because my heart and our heart as a, as a team of elders, as a team of pastors, is not that we would have a great event for you to attend on the weekends, but that there would be a great church here for you to belong to. God's heart for Christians is never for you to attend an event, but for you to belong to a people, amen? And so as we, as we are 
looking at this, I'm, I'm really encouraged, I'm really encouraged to say that this Friday night, we're gonna have a celebration of our founding covenant members. We're gonna have 175 adults sign the membership covenant and say that they wanna be a part of this body as we're kind of finalizing this replanting process that we've been going through for the last six months. And I don't cry often or easily, but I wept this week when I read over the list of names. Because you do not covenant to an organization, you covenant with people. It's a people. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Travis preached, he did a great job, but he said something pretty shocking at the end of his sermon. I know it ruffled at least a few feathers. Ruffled my feathers because I wasn't expecting him to say it. I'm probably misquoting, but he said something to the effect of, you know, if you're here and you're just attending, you're welcome to attend, but please don't mistake yourself for one of us. Whoa, that was kind of a slap. Wow. And he explained what he meant by that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna re-articulate it because I've been chewing on that, what he said a few weeks ago. He said that it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you're not a part of the church. And, and first-time guests, uh, visitors, it doesn't mean that you're not welcome if you're just visiting the church. But what he meant that from a heart level, there are too many of us that are far too content to say, yeah, I go to a church or I attend a church instead of I belong to a people. That's what he was getting at. And so for you, it's about the heart. It's not about the procedures. We're not gonna go letter of the law on you, but I wanna invite you. Do, you. do you have a heart to belong? Do you have a heart to make yourself known? Do you have a heart to say, yes, these are my leaders. Yes, this is my community. Yes, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ to actually enter into covenantal relationship with other Christians the way we see modeled throughout the Bible. It's not, it's not that you're a, a second-class citizen. Please don't hear that. But it is that you're missing out on the fullness of what Jesus has for you in his church and the blessings they're in. So there's that invitation let me conclude with this, this thought. Some of you here today have been covenant breakers. Some of you here listening to me speak today have been unfaithful to a spouse. Some of you maybe right now are being unfaithful to a spouse and today is the day to come clean. Some of you have been unfaithful to other covenants that you've made. Maybe that's with friendships. Maybe that's with children. Some of you have broken covenant with church. Some of you have broken covenant with God. You've been worshiping idols. You've been giving God lip service, but really worshiping and loving something else in your heart. And my word to you today is this. I want you to see how faithful God is. Come to him in repentance. Come to him in brokenness and put his promise, as it were, into work in your life that you are, if you're a Christian, you're part of an unbreakable covenant though you have broken the covenant, he is still faithful to you. How much grace might there be for you? And there are others of you in the room here today who have known the devastation and the heartbreak of having covenant be broken with you. Some of you have had a spouse be unfaithful. Some of you have had a spouse leave and your heart's been devastated. Some of you have had parents who did not raise you covenantally you were missing mom or you were missing dad growing up. Some of you have known the pain of having a child reject you and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Some of you have known the pain of being part of a church that didn't live up to everything you thought it was going to be. Some of you have had your heart devastated by broken covenant. And I invite you today to taste and see that the Lord is good and his faithfulness endures throughout all generations. And even though you're afraid God is still faithful and there's grace and there's healing for you today. And we're gonna to respond to him in his faithfulness.
We're gonna respond in a few ways as we usually do. First way we're gonna respond is with the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward now if they would. If you're a guest, uh, please hear me. You're under no obligation to give. You're, you're welcome to if you would like, but this is something that we do as a church family, as a church community, uh, in worship to God. If you wanna find more information about how to give online or text to give, it's in your Connect card that you're handing. And while they're collecting the offering, I'm gonna go over a few discussion questions for you to, to have conversation and to stir up conversation this week in your community groups or in your homes, okay? So first one is this. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and what does it mean that we have no sufficiency in ourselves, but that our sufficiency is from Christ, okay? Talk about that phrase. Number two, how is the new covenant different from the old and how is it the same? Talk about some of those differences and similarities between the two covenants. Number three, how does the biblical idea of covenant conflict with our culture's high value on individualism and autonomy? I imagine you'll be able to think of more than a few examples. Number four, where in your life, this is a time and an opportunity to get personal, where in your life have you experienced hurt due to broken covenant? Or by way of confession, some of you need to confess places where you've broken covenant and how can you experience God's grace in either situation? Don't just focus on the negative. Honestly identify the problem and then see how God's grace is bigger. It's bigger. Number five, how is the gospel the ultimate expression of God's covenantal love? Don't forget the cross, please, church. Don't forget the empty tomb. And number six, how can Christians display God's covenantal love even to those who do not return the commitment. You know, if you seek to be a covenantal type of person, if you seek to be a faithful, committed covenantal person, do you know that others are not going to reciprocate all the time? You know that's going to happen? So how can you practice covenant even when it's not returned by others? How can you still act with the loving faithfulness of God even when others don't? We're going to respond with a celebration of the Lord's table. This is where we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, and we celebrate the fact that Jesus poured out his blood as a sign and the seal of the new covenant that we're a part of. When you come forward today, I want you to rejoice that you are included in God's unbreakable new covenant. That's a, that's a great privilege, amen? If you are not a Christian, the invitation stands. Give your sin to Jesus. Join us at the table for the first time as a believer. And we're going to sing... And I want to do something a little bit different today. Before we come forward to the table, before we celebrate as we usually do, I want to invite you to take a moment of reflection to think on God's covenant faithfulness. And here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to just remain seated for a minute. I'm going to have Pastor Joe uh, lead us in a, a great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I invite you to, to sing along if you want or to maybe just sit quietly and reflect on his faithfulness before we come forward. We'll sing this together. And then I'll pray and then I'll invite you to come forward in a time of response. Let's reflect on God's faithfulness now.